BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, as the murder trial of a former Minneapolis police officer charged with killing George Floyd gets underway and President Biden signs the $1.9 trillion relief plan, we will talk with the woman who coined the phrase Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza. That's right. We're going to talk with her about the significance of that $1.9 trillion package signed today, how the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis changed the role of Black Lives Matter, and about her new book, as well as what's being called a black mandate for the Biden-Harris administration. Look very much forward to that in just a few minutes. But Marisa, some things happened this week in California, as they often do as well. Uh, Tuesday, uh, Gavin Newsom stood somewhere in the outfield of Dodger Stadium and gave his uh, State of the State address. There were no nobody in the stands, which I guess was I symbolic, you know, but it was kind of weird, you know, giving one of these speeches that usually gets all kinds of rousing applause from legislators, and it was just kind of silence. The only thing we heard was helicopters over overhead. Yeah, very LA. I don't know if they planned that or if uh, maybe the sheriff down there, who's probably not a big Newsom fan, <laughs> sent up. But I mean, yeah, I think on optics, Scott, I mean, we've talked about this, but it, it was... I think a powerful statement to stand in front of, you know, a stadium of 56,000 empty chairs, nearly the number of Californians that have tragically died from COVID-19. It was also a bit incongruous with his sort of message of optimism. Um, And then just on the merits, I mean, we followed this guy for 20 years. I mean, he, I've never heard him talk that fast. It was like... He, he was, was nervous like over caffeinated. I know we've talked and he's talked about his dyslexia. He doesn't like using a teleprompter. He's actually very good at memorizing. And so that may have contributed to it. And, you know, all in all, I mean, whatever it's it's done, I think maybe it would have been better just to do it from his office with a tie and his, at his desk and, you know, be done with it. But nonetheless, I mean, it was, you know, I think all of us understand uh, that he has been dealt not the best hand, uh, you know, uh, as governor. He was handed the state that was in great shape and, and suddenly. There's a pandemic that turns everything upside down, and he's gotten a lot of criticism for some things. Um, and I think he's hoping that we've turned the corner with the vaccines and the reopening. Um, and of course, the elephant in the stadium, as I said, uh, was the recall, which he never mentioned. He never used the word recall, but he certainly alluded to it. Yeah, he kind of gave a rebuke. And we are expecting the recall uh, signature gatherers to turn in those signatures next week. They say they have the one and a half million to put this on the ballot later this year. We'll have to see uh, what the Secretary of State and local registrars say about the validity of those signatures. But, you know, certainly I think that informed the kind of backdrop of this speech with Newsom really trying to talk about both, you know, the need for his administration and the state to get kids back in school chairs, to get shots in arms of people, to get this relief 
relief money out the door, both at the state, you know, the state money and the federal money. Um, but then also, you know, to tackle some of the problems that Newsom really campaigned on around inequality, bigger issues that obviously our guests will have some thoughts on later. Yeah. And, you know, in a funny way, I think perhaps the recall has focused him in a way that he wasn't focused before. He's now, you know, I think opened up better lines of communication with legislators. He needs to keep all these Democrats on the same page with him to make sure nobody runs against him in the recall. Um, And, you know, I think he knows what's at stake, obviously. Uh, And, you know, I think Republicans are benefiting from this as well. It's going to help them organize and build their infrastructure. They're mobilizing volunteers. But, you know, and let's not get too far ahead, but if he does beat back the recall in a fairly convincing way, it could, you know, look very different in 2022. Yeah. I mean, like, who's going to want to run against him in that case in 2022? And also, like, I think from a GOP standpoint, there's a kind of a danger here that some of the money that came in nationally, some of the interest we're hearing from the National Party, I mean, could almost help sort of burnish Democrats in their argument against the recall, because any ties to Trump, any ties to kind of the broader GOP is not necessarily going to be helpful in a state like California. And, you know, even with all that organizing, it may not actually matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Kevin Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego, Republican who, you know, likes to paint himself as as a moderate Republican, he did vote for Donald Trump. And I think that there's polling that the recall campaign has seen that shows that, hey, the more this is about in the minds of voters, the more it's about Donald Trump and the Republican Party, the less likely it is to succeed. So they've got a a tough uh, sort of, uh, you know, road to hoe there. And, you know, there's talk that Rick Rennell, who was in the uh, Trump administration, the ambassador to Germany, he might get in to the race, which I'm sure the Republican Party in California, that's the last thing. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing, because they're not that's not exactly the type of of Republican (laughs) that Californians usually embrace. Um, Well, we want to get to a couple other issues, Scott. And I know um, we are now hearing that it is looking like smooth sailing for now California. AG Javier Becerra. Uh, He will be the first Latino Health and Human Services Secretary. We just heard today that um, Republican Susan Collins, as well as moderate Democrat Joe Manchin, have you know are going to support him, help vote him out of committee. Um, So Newsom will get to maybe a double-edged sword of another appointment. Another appointment, yes. Yeah, probably next week. week, Exactly. I think that vote. He'll probably think he's going to wait until the you know the the actual vote to confirm Becerra, which I'm we're you know we're told will be next week. Yeah, but you know, and there's a lot. That's another thing we want to talk to our guest about, Alicia Garza. Uh, She's uh, endorsed one of the people who's been named as a possible successor to Becerra as AG, and you know that's going to give him the Hunger Games that are appointments. <laughs> in California. <laughs> yeah, you know, he waited He waited a long time to appoint Padilla. And uh, I think in the end, I think that worked out pretty well for him. But, you know, there's a lot of people who would like to see a woman uh, as attorney general. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about all that. And and then also, you know, and, I, and this, I think, ties into the recall very much, this COVID relief bill uh, that uh, President Biden signed this afternoon. You know, you can't overstate how much having a not just a Democratic president, but a vice president from California helps uh, Gavin Newsom in a moment like this where, you know, we've got these two FEMA-run uh, vaccine centers that are up and running. They were among the first in the country. So, you know, he's got uh, he's got a lot of cards to play, I think, with Democrats now controlling Congress uh, and the White House. Yeah, and this, this relief package we can get into more. But, it, I mean, this is really a remarkable piece of legislation, uh, one of the biggest things we've seen in recent years, if, if not longer. Um, and... And, 
you know, it, it, it's really a huge expansion of the social safety net done in a way that I think is going to make it really difficult for Republicans to try to roll it back. I'm talking particularly about this expanded child tax credit. Um, and, you know, I think people like Nancy Pelosi are probably uh, breathing a big sigh of relief. Um, this is something that, you know, she's <laughs> had to shepherd her caucus um, on. And, you know, I think it really speaks to the way that the Democratic Party has moved to the left and that people like Bernie Sanders, um, activists like Black Lives Matter have really pushed issues that even a couple years ago would have been kind of unthinkable to the mainstream Democratic Party and are now just the norm. And unlike, say, uh, the Affordable Care Act, which Obama pushed through in 2010, the benefits of which took a long time for people to feel. People felt the, the you know, the sort of the penalty right away, but they didn't feel the benefits. But this, people are going to feel this very, very shortly in their pocketbook. So, and, all right. And compared to even the, the, the Republican tax plan, which obviously just helped higher income earners, but tax credits are different than checks in your hand, Absolutely. right? So Absolutely. it's going to be, yeah. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Alicia Garza. She's co-founder of Black Lives Matter. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Alicia Garza. She's a Bay Area native, born in Oakland, raised in Marin County. She became a leading figure in Black Lives Matter, which she says is a phrase she coined in a late night Facebook post in 2013. Alicia Garza, welcome to Political Breakdown. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We are delighted to have you. So much to talk about. And about I time, right? Oaklander. Yes. We haven't even had her on before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let, we, let, let's start with uh, the news, which is uh, President Biden signing that uh, $1.9 trillion Recovery Act today, one of the largest, most ambitious attempts, not just to restart the economy, to all, but also to pull so many American kids out of poverty. What are your thoughts about that? I know that he was not your first choice, second or third choice, for that matter, uh, to be president. Uh, what, what, what are you thinking about today as that bill gets signed? Yeah, well, I think it's an incredible accomplishment. And these are resources that are long overdue for communities that have not just been struggling through the pandemic, but certainly strug were struggling prior to that. You're absolutely right. Joe Biden was not my first, second, third fourth <laughs> for president. But I have to say that the Biden-Harris administration is absolutely coming out swinging. This is an important investment. It's an important infusion of resources. And you and I both know that we need a lot more. It's exactly why we released the Build Back Boulder mandate uh, for the Biden-Harris administration earlier this year, because we understand that while 
we took a lot of very, very important steps. I know that Black communities across the nation are expecting more. We've delivered uh, power in all three branches of government, and we expect that the problems that have been plaguing our communities, not just for the last four years, but for generations, uh, will be addressed and will be addressed with resources and with creativity and with bold action. For example, we definitely want to see a $15 minimum wage included in another stimulus bill that will not just provide a one-time infusion of cash, but it'll raise the wage for more than 28 million people across this country. We also want to see not just a one-time stimulus check. There are so many families that are in holes that they cannot get out of. And we need to see more and larger infusions of cash into American families across the nation. We think there should be $2,000 a month checks until the pandemic is completed. And then, of course, with COVID relief and recovery, it is so important to make sure that Black communities in particular have access to this vaccine, that there's racial equity in vaccinations, and that we don't just talk about mistrust of uh, the medical system, but we also talk about rigged rules that keep resources like vaccines out of communities that really need them. Or if they are in those communities, still are going to white and more affluent people, as we've seen in some cases. Uh, Before we get into the Build Back Boulder plan, I want to ask, I mentioned at the top that this is a package, even if, you know, activists like you want more, that goes beyond what someone like President Obama felt comfortable doing. And I wonder if you see this as a real sea change and and a rebuke of, you know, Clintonism, the black welfare queen myth, the, you know, Reaganism, this idea that government can't help. Do you think we've turned a corner here sort of politically, especially within the Democratic Party? So far, I think that the indications say yes. And we're about a month and a half into this. So we certainly want to see more of what we're seeing right now. And we want to see it go farther. I have to be honest with you. Absolutely, there is a necessity for more courage and more creativity in this moment. What we saw from the American Relief Act is incredible. It is not precedented, certainly from the last four years, but even the last 12 years. There's a lot of opportunity right now. And I think a lot of us wanna see us take advantage of this opportunity. It's not every day that Democrats have tripartite control. And so this is really an opportunity to keep doing the things that we're seeing like with the uh, American Relief Act and then also continuing to go farther. We really have nothing to lose. And we see that Republicans continue to throw up these straw men, these boogeymen, right? They're hand-wringing about everything, but they're not actually putting forward an agenda that we can debate. And so in that kind of political circumstance, it's important for Democrats to lead. And the American Relief Act is one example of leadership, and we need to keep leading for all of the communities that have been left out and left behind. Well, and we and look it, forward to working with them to do that. It is extraordinary that uh, the role that black voters have played in all this. I mean, Joe Biden was rescued by Jim Clyburn in South Carolina. If he had not won that primary as he did in very convincing fashion, uh, he probably wouldn't have gone on to Super Tuesday. And then, of course, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff winning in Georgia. Nobody thought that was possible. Talk about the the importance of power, because, you know, one, I think, lesson in all this is it's great to have the sort of the, the moral high ground on issues. But if you don't have power, you got nothing. That's right. Well, this is something I love to talk about power. You know, power is not just about feeling good about yourself. 
Power is fundamentally about making the rules and changing the rules. It's about deciding where resources go and where they don't go. And it's also about being able to levy consequences when the people that you elect to move your agenda disappoint you. And that's exactly what Black voters did in these last two election cycles. We wielded our power. It wasn't for the Democratic Party. I think, you know, for a lot of us, uh, parties uh, are, are ways that we express our values, but they don't reflect the totality of our values. And I think Black voters were a great example of that. Black voters went to the polls, not for Raphael Warnock, not for John Ossoff, certainly not for Joe Biden, but for change and for the demand that uh, the things that we're seeing in our communities from a lack of health care to a lack of jobs, to a lack of access to unions, to attacks on voting rights. We want to put people in office who are going to hear our mandate for change. And that's exactly what we did. And I think what is important for people to understand is that um, just like power can be given, it can be taken away. That's exactly what we saw uh, in this last election cycle. Even though Joe Biden wasn't a lot of people's top choice, what we were willing to do was exercise our power to take somebody out of office who I believe was one of the greatest threats to democracy in a generation. I mean, you obviously we're going to get into the kind of genesis of Black Lives Matter and the, and, and the protest movement and, and the impact it's had. But I, 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 I do want to ask, like, within this Build Back Boulder plan, which, of course, includes, um, you know, things like removing policies that lock uh, black Americans out of good jobs and, and health access, climate crisis, um, rejecting the toxic culture of white nationalism. I mean, these are all things that are obviously would have a huge impact on African-Americans, but go beyond that community, right? And I know, I'm just curious, like how you think about balancing the need for all black spaces where people are not having their voices kind of overrun by folks from other communities, but also the coalition building that's necessary potentially to get the, you know, to get into power and to keep it. Absolutely. Well, you know, black voters know a lot about that. We've always known that we're not the majority in this country. And so that's meant that we've had to build coalitions with poor and working class white folks, with uh, Latinx folks, with Asians from the diaspora, uh, with indigenous people, right? Also folks who are being left out and left behind. And then we make a common agenda and we move it. You know, for me, I think that in this moment, what we need to be very, very concerned about is exactly the story that you told. You know, if it were up to Republicans, if it was up to the conservative right in this country, they would have you believe that investing in communities that have been left out and left behind is somehow taking something away from other people. And I agree with you, Marisa. Absolutely. When we invest in black communities, it's not just good for black communities. It's good for all of us. You know, I'm thinking about my friend Heather McGee. She just wrote an incredible book called The Sum of Us. And she outlines this uh, zero sum thinking that Republicans and conservatives have been campaigning on basically for my entire life. There's this notion that there are makers and takers. But the real story here is that what's happening in black communities is also happening to other communities. Whether we talk about the, uh, uh, the mortgage crisis, right? And the foreclosure crisis, evictions, uh, when we talk about subprime loans, when we talk about lack of access to healthcare, 
these aren't just issues that are impacting black people. They're impacting the majority of America. It's just that they're impacting black people differently because they're disproportionately impacting us based on the uh, population size that we have here in the United States. And the layers of history. And of course, of course, of course. So at the end of the day, we believe that what's good for black people is good for America. And we see that time and time again. That's why we're so excited about the power that black voters exercised in these last two election cycles. It wasn't just for us. It was for humanity. It was for this country and it was for the entire world. And black voters really should be thanked for opening up that opportunity and for giving us a pathway forward instead of careening off the cliff, which is where we were headed. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking today with Alicia Garza, who co-founded the social justice movement known as Black Lives Matter. Her new book, by the way, is titled The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. We want to talk about your early years, but I do want to sneak in a question about this incredible interview this week or Sunday with uh, Oprah and Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Uh, it is, seems to have just like exploded in Great Britain. What are your thoughts about, uh, you know, the whole thing, uh, you know, just the focus on the color of, uh, of, their, of Archie's skin and the, you know, the way they were shut out of the royal family? I mean, I mean, in some ways, none of it is surprising, but wow, to hear it from their mouths is something else. Well, it's really fascinating because um, for so many of us, we're surprised by the things that we're hearing. But I think we have to remember this is a very um, old society that is steeped in uh, ideas and practices that I think for a lot of us, right, we've, we figured we're left in the in the past. And what we saw in this interview is that all of those things that we are trying to leave in the past are still very much present in our everyday society. I think, you know, Megan and Harry are both incredibly courageous for speaking out in the way that they did. Um, for a lot of people, you know, they will say that they're committing heresy. But for the rest of us, I think we are uh, given the opportunity to really examine how far we still have left to go. I mean, here we are in 2021 and the first uh, mixed race woman who is part black, uh, you know, has uh, the keys to the monarchy and they very clearly said to her, your keys are revoked. And so are the keys. We changed the locks. <laughs> yeah, like actually we're not going for that. So I think it's courageous of people like Harry, like Megan to be speaking out. Uh, you know, Harry is giving up a lot. He's giving up a lot of money. He's giving up a lot of power and he's going to be okay. Let's just be clear. They're both be fine. <laughs> but I think it's an interesting way for us to continue to have this conversation about the written and unwritten rules of racism and how yeah. they are still shaping our world and our politics today. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, Meghan Markle's mixed race background. You grew up in famously white Marin County, <laughs> at least in the Bay Area. And your dad is Jewish, which I didn't actually realize um, until we started researching and for this white. interview. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Um, so what for you growing up in a community that is pretty well known for trying to honestly keep low income and people of color out um, in a mixed race household? I mean, what was your experience like in in your childhood? Well, it was a little bit of all the things. I mean, it was very odd, right, to be in a community so homogenous and it makes you very conscious of your differences. 
you know, as a kid and as most kids do, I was um, often very uh, anxious about being singled out, right? Mm -hmm. No kid, especially a teenager, likes to feel like they stand out. All we want to do is blend in. But I think what that experience really did for me was allowed me to embrace my unique story, my unique upbringing, and also the unique things that I bring to the table. It also helped me understand that, you know, the problems that exist in, you know, what are considered to be low income urban communities are the same problems that exist in wealthy <laughs> suburban communities. But the difference is that um, there are racial hierarchies, right? And the difference is also, of course, income and wealth. And income and wealth is able to hide a lot of things that um, without it, you wouldn't be able to hide. So a lot of this has given me a, a very helpful nuanced perspective on how we make change happen, how we bring communities together, and also what's at the core of the things that most of us care about. Those, I think, are important uh, components to building movements and to building movements that win and that last. I want to ask you about Black Lives Matter and, of course, this week, the trial of former uh, Minneapolis police uh, officer uh, Derek Chauvin is getting underway for the murder of George Floyd. Um, you started Black Lives Matter, or, or the phrase, I guess, was first used, and then a hashtag was put in front of it by one of your friends in, you know, after the, the killing of uh, Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of uh, the person who killed him. What are your thoughts as this trial uh, begins in Minneapolis, and what is at stake? I mean, it's very tough uh, to convict police officers, especially of murder. Um, you'd think this would be an open and closed case in a lot of ways, given that video. But what do you what's at stake? Yeah, well, I think is it, what's at stake is a continued exposure of the rules that are rigged to keep power in power and to keep power away from people who need it. And at the end of the day, my heart breaks for George Floyd's family. Uh, my heart breaks for his children. My heart breaks for um, all of us who watched that senseless, tragic, violent murder on television. I will never, ever uh, erase that vision of Derek Chauvin with his knee on the neck of a man who was crying out for his mother in his last breaths on earth. And I think it's important for people to understand that there are so many rules in place that allow for uh, these kinds of murders to go uh, without accountability and without consequence. And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is that the, the, the cards are already being stacked in favor of an acquittal. And that has a lot to do with the fact that um, there are higher standards to hold police accountable than there are for people to become, you know, cosmopolitan, you know, to become doctors in this country, right? Like there's a lot of ways in which we are protecting um, police when they do harm in our communities. And really that hurts all of us. You know, your husband, Amwachi, is a trans man, and I know that you came to activism early, um, but he was very involved in the Oscar Grant, uh, activism after Oscar Grant. Um, and you talk a lot about intersectionality and the need for these movements to be inclusive. Have you seen in in the short time that Black Lives Matter, I mean, maybe not short time anymore, but has been a thing, is that is that getting better? And And I'm thinking in particular, in connection to George Floyd, 
how different some of it felt because it felt like there was an uh, uh, embracing of this by white America um, last summer that hadn't been there maybe during Ferguson. So kind of what's your state, like what's the state of the, of the activist movement when it comes to that inclusivity? Well, it ha- you're right. It, it's actually been a long time. I mean, this, this period in uh, our movement history has been about 10 years. Uh, but this movement for freedom and for justice and for dignity is much longer and much older than all of us. And I do think that there's a lot that has changed over the last decade. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that um, people's lives are changing and not for the better. Uh, It's no longer uh, a secret, right, that more and more of us are falling into poverty, uh, getting farther and farther away from any access to any kind of middle class, uh, that more and more of us, right, are being kept farther and farther away from being able to make decisions over our own lives. Uh, And that bodes uh, terribly, right, for the quality of life that we enjoy, but it bodes well for uh, an environment where movements can flourish because movements are what happen when people come together to do something about the things that they want to see changed. And I do think over the last decade, we've paid a lot more attention to making sure that nobody gets left behind. And we're trying to learn the lessons of past eras of this movement, where we have erred in uh, not interrupting the power dynamics that keep most of us from being powerful in our everyday lives. So certainly we've we've moved closer to intersectionality um, and we have an intersectional approach to how we build movements and we still have work to do, but I think there has been a lot of advances. Well, Alicia Garza, we are so happy to have you today. We had a lot more things we wanted to ask you, but we are <laughs> out of time. But uh, we'll have you back another time uh, to talk Thank about so some much. of the other things. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is... Jim Bennett. KQD's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. We'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the show in the weeks ahead. You can tweet your suggestions to me. I'm at M Lagos. Or to me, I'm at Scott Schaefer. Send us some good ideas and we'll take it from there. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Bye. Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.